Warning. Uh, Oxygen level at 71 millibars. I have to tell you the truth. The truth about what? Welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek fans step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith, and joining me on the bridge. This is Tyler Orton, floating in an EV suit in the dead of space to have deep conversations with a person that I've been flirting with for a couple years. Benjamin Young isn't here, but I guess I'll have to do today. <laughs> I was wondering why you uh, were wearing your EV suit when I did not request it. <laughs> and we're here this week to talk about pairing up to perfection. Tyler, what does that mean? Well, Cam, we want to examine the best kind of two-hander episodes. And I guess, you know, what is a two-hander episode? I, I think we would have to agree that it's uh, two characters, you know, these uh, perfect pairs, as we'd like to think of them, um, where at least... At the very least, the A story, and a larger A story at that, is very much focused on two characters, and it's really more of kind of a character examination in which they're bouncing off each other almost almost nonstop throughout the entire episode. And it's less maybe plot-driven, action-heavy in some cases, but I think these are kind of the best pairs that are kind of revealing something very deep inside themselves. Do you have kind of a, um, a much more articulate and, and hopefully much uh, briefer... <laughs> A summarization of what a what a two-hander is, Camp. Best duo episodes. Sure. Okay. Um, no, but I think, you know, we did an episode called Friendships in the Final Frontier, a title that took us, I think, an hour to come up with for that particular podcast episode. Um, but, you know, in the past, we've looked at relationships on Star Trek and, you know, kind of these buddy dynamics and how they lend themselves to some great storytelling. I thought it would be interesting and we decided would be to look at specific episodes and how they comment on the relationships of a pair of characters, a pair that fans generally will shout out as favorites in terms of having duo episodes. And in all fairness, we were very much inspired by the fact that uh, last week we talked about the episode Duet, and so we're like, well, mm -hmm. what are some other uh, duets that have been going on in uh, Star Trek uh, lately? Or by lately, I mean over the last 55 years. Yes, exactly. So do you want to start us off, uh, the first episode that was on your radar? Yeah, um, Tuvix, Cam. Uh, it's uh, <laughs> Neelix and Tuvok uh, paired up like I've never seen them before. Um, uh, actually, in all seriousness, uh, I'll go with faces. Uh, Bellana is paired up with Bellana. Um <laughs> <laughs> The shoot. Tom Paris and Harry Kim in prison. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, I'll do a serious. I'll, I'll, I'll be totally serious, even though I said that last time, and I, I, I wasn't being honest here. Um, I, I want to go hmm. to indiscretion. 
This is with uh, Kira and Ducat. It's pretty much a uh, a very blatant remake of uh, John Ford's The Searchers, but it's where Kira and Ducat essentially have to go on a mission and, and fetch Ducat's um, illegitimate daughter, uh, half Bajoran, half Cardassian daughter, on a very horrendous, like, Breen forced labor camp. And seeing the two of these folks actually be in a situation where it's not necessarily antagonism out the roof. You know, there's the campfire scene in which, like, I think Ducat's worried he's going to get stung by a, a space scorpion or something like that. But um, <laughs> it comes to, to a very, very tense situation where Ducat's ready to um, murder his um his illegitimate daughter and uh, Kira has to intervene and then after a change of heart um Ducat is like okay well I'll take her under my wing and for that um we find out you know a couple episodes later he's essentially exiled from uh kind of Cardassian uh society there so I I just for me watching the Ducat and Kira dynamic play out over the course of an entire episode I mean it's so obvious these two uh performers have chemistry um and this one works for me. But do you remember uh, in the Deep Space Nine documentary, like, um, when Nana Visitor um, accidentally blurted out, like, she's really not attracted to Mark Alimo, and but <laughs> she meant to say Ducat. And then she, you, you can see that she was asking the producers to cut that out. And they're like, no, we're leaving that in, uh, which is quite hilarious. Yeah, oh, I do remember that. That was very funny. Um, and this is a fantastic episode. And uh, true story. After we'd started recording, we were in the first couple minutes, that episode suddenly popped into my mind, and I was scrolling on my phone to remember the title of it. So uh, you were were you on the, the ball ahead of me, so uh, props for your choice. But this is a yeah fantastic episode, and what I like about it is that it takes a character who's just the worst of the worst in Ducat, and we know Kira's long-term relationship with him. And the fact that the show has built for multiple seasons the dynamic between the two, to put them together is like this pressure cooker situation that I think in a dumber show, it would have just been the two of them fighting the whole episode. And I like that there's a common goal they can both agree on, but like they both get on each other's nerves. There's little bits of humor where they kind of like, as you said, the scorpion a bit that Kira finds quite hilarious. And it just builds to this very tense moment with Torazial at the end. It's the sort of episode that I think DS9 does very well because you think about, you know, another type of show or something, it wouldn't be as interesting to pair off like a main villain and a, you know, leading hero character as much as it is in Star Trek where they genuinely care about multidimensional personalities. Oh, yeah. So, Cam, um, what is next on your list here, sir? I'm just going to name a boring one because I think it's one that as soon as people see the uh, heading of this episode, immediately think of. So let's just get it out of the way. It's Kirk and Spock. You have to acknowledge Kirk and Spock as the all-time great duo probably on Star Trek. And so you kind of have to then sit and go, well, what's the great Kirk and Spock story? I went with a mock time. Um, I think some people might say City on the Edge of Forever, but I kind of look at the Edith Keeler stuff as kind of pushing Spock into the background a little bit. And Amok Time, obviously Spock is going through Ponfar. It's a very sensitive topic. And why I chose this one is the conversation that he has with Kirk, where he tells him in confidence about what he's going through. And this is the sort of relationship building that I don't think was the most common in 60s television. It's, you know, two men talking about a very personal subject. And yes, it does build to a big gladiator fight and all the fun, colorful stuff we see on Star Trek. But... 
it's the intimacy of that relationship and what that means going forward for the rest of the franchise that kind of is all starting to really build here. So, yeah, I think a mock time was probably the best of choices I could really make with such a difficult assignment on this one. Well, Cam, I do appreciate the fact that you're keeping your streak up when it comes to kicking the podcast off with boring choices. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> listeners, just go back to our um, Aliens of the Delta Quadrant episode uh, to hear me just like scream at Cam, like pick an interesting species. I don't want to hear about the Kazon or the Ocampa anymore. Come on, sir. Come on. Yeah, it was the Ocampa, wasn't it, that I kicked it off with? <laughs> And then, and then he went on to the Kazon. I think there's another boring species in there. I was, <laughs> I, I, I was getting a, a little frustrated. But um, yeah, a, a mock time. It might be the episode where I just have the easiest time rewatching it again and again and again when it comes to the original series. This is a fun episode, and the fact that uh, we did kind of have kind of that, uh, very much kind of an allusion to it when we had uh, Spock a mock uh, in this uh, mm. in first season of uh, Strange New Worlds, even down to kind of the, the musical cues. I mean, that was just great. Like, that warmed my heart right there. And I don't know, there's just something very iconic about what they're able to develop with this relationship. And this might be kind of the, the best, you know, examination of who they are personality-wise. Like, you can look at something like, uh, like, you know, City on the Edge, but is that Kirk at his typical self you know and uh, you, i think you make the argument that that spock at his typical self but it, it's kirking kind of more of a heightened sort of experience as he's falling in love with edith keeler i think it's these two um actually though I, i'm talking about heightened selves and i i'm ignoring the fact that uh, spock is indeed going through Ponfar. but um, i absolutely love this episode <laughs> but also like spock is the most interesting when he's vulnerable i think that tends to lend itself to the really really interesting explorations of the character and this is him at among his most vulnerable, and to actually have Kirk there to talk him through it, I think is actually a pretty imp important aspect of that relationship. Alrighty, sir. Uh, I'm going to follow this up with a, a TNG episode. Um, final mission. This is with uh, Picard and Wesley as they crash land on a shuttle. And uh, very quickly, uh, their captain uh, is dead, and uh, they need to find some sort of uh, water. And it ain't looking good for uh, Picard at that point. Um, I, I also just like how it's the two of them who, they're both somewhat aloof characters in their own interesting ways. And, um, well, Picard more so than Wesley. I don't know how interesting. <laughs> Especially, uh, well, I don't want to spoil anything, but uh, the last time we see Wesley, I don't know if he's at his most interesting point. <laughs> but in which these two kind of distant fellas, they're being open and honest with each other about what they mean to each other in um, uh, just a, a very truthful, honest way. And um, I also like it when characters get to show off their smarts and it's, you know, Wesley kind of doing some uh, tri-quarter techno-babble doodaddy stuff in order to get that water to Picard and, until they're saved by the rescue party. So um, this might be, you know, I, I, I often go back and forth whether Final Mission or The First Duty is my favorite uh, uh, Wesley episode. But as far as how you would define a two-hander, this is very much, you know, like 80% uh, of this episode is focused on Picard and Wesley. This is a classic case of a relationship on Star Trek that 
if you ask people about memorable relationships, they go, oh, of course, Picard and Wesley. And I don't know if that's at the top of their list, but it's on the list probably. Um, and yet when you actually break it down to how many episodes are actually about those two, it's like this one. Like, uh, like there's not a lot to really compare it to. Uh, First Duty is a really good episode, but there's so many other elements aside from just, you know, Picard and Wesley. Whereas this one, yeah, this one actually examines the relationship. It's a little bit, in some ways, maybe like another um, uh, pairing I can think of, a DS9 one with uh, two characters who are consistently tied together in canon, but only have one episode where they're actually together for the duration of the story. We'll probably get to that one later. Um, But this one, yeah, like Wesley's a character who I think, I mean, at the time, somewhat of a polarizing figure, Episodes like this do an incredible amount of service to that character and making him matter to the show instead of having, you know, characters tell him to shut up on the bridge or whatever. Uh, I like that it sort of acknowledges the maturing of Wesley, that he's, you know, a young man who's going to grow into a character we're going to care about going forward. And I honestly think these survival setting episodes, and I got a few of them on my list, uh, it's a great scenario for building a relationship kind of bonding episode around. I think it's also just a very solid send-off episode for a departing character. It's not as if like they're killing him off like Tasha Yar, but I would argue Star Trek does not have a very good history of sending characters off when they're leaving a, a, a series, and this one actually accomplishes what is quite the rare feat. Can you think of, um, I don't know, like a better example? Um, I did have a question while I think about that. Was this the first departure following Tasha Yar? Out of the main cast? Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, significantly better job there. Um, in terms of decent ones, God, I'm just like racking my brain. Jadzia's was nothing great. Um, Kess's. Kess's wasn't great. Yeah. Uh, I I don't know if Lorca's (laughs) was, uh, uh, particularly Uh. well done. Um, Giorgio's wasn't. Yeah. So, um, I guess you could argue, um, you know, Anson Mounts as Pike, uh, when he departed the series, uh, at the end of the second (laughs) season, you know, but yeah, that was a smart call. Yeah. And I I think it was a decent exit, but at the same time, there was a pretty strong sense something was going to happen with that kind of universe anyway, with those characters. So yeah, in terms of like the other, especially like that Berman era, boy, there's really not much, is there? Um, what about the uh, Seed Vault episode where uh, Ra- Rachel Antrell's uh, character, um, the uh, Benozian, is that what she was? Uh, uh, the, you're talking about Non, right? Yeah, Non, the security chief, where uh, she decides to go a thousand years in the future just to hang out at a Seed Vault. Yep. She did come back, though. Yeah. Briefly. She did come back, Cam. And I loved how <laughs> the entire bridge was hooting and hollering their tears, their hugs. And I was like, you, like this person has had like a total of like 12 minutes of screen time. Um, like, uh, like who cares about this character that much? Like, I, I'm, I, I was in the Facebook groups, and there's actually a lot of people on the Facebook groups like super excited that Nan was coming back. And I was like, really? Why? Yeah, you know, I, I I don't know. I I don't think Trek has a, a great history of send-offs, but I think um you know uh Final Mission was I think it's got to be the best. Yeah, it it is a pretty fantastic one. 
And I guess for my next pick, I'm going to jump over to Enterprise and mention the episode Twilight, which is kind of one of those time anomaly episodes. Archer is injured in an accident and essentially has sort of this amnesia where he keeps forgetting what has happened to him. And we get this flash forward far off into the future where he's living with T'Pol and she's basically like a caretaker to him. And then they embark on a mission to try to reverse the problem that caused this in the first place. But I think why this one is so great is less to do with the problem solving in the back half of the episode, but more to do with a relationship that on the show, early on, they got kind of cringy with the uh, um, Archer and T'Pol, like sexual heat in that episode, uh, A Night in Sick Bay, like stuff like that did not work. But what really it worked, worked for was me, just, Cam, like... I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> you were like, give me seven nights in sick bay, please. <laughs> I was fanning myself. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you remember there was like voiceover in that one? It was so weird. I think I played a clip on an episode uh, in the past. Boy, that was awesome. Whoa. I, yeah, Cam, I remember the uh, hot and heavy <laughs> clip you're uh, playing there. Yeah. I'll never forget that. But yes, like just the intimacy of the relationship they build and. It's like there's something about Archer and T'Pol. T'Pol's a character who's done dirty quite a bit throughout the course of Enterprise on the part of the writers. They just, you know, they kind of like have the male crew members team up on her a lot, basically, and criticizing her and ridiculing her. Um, She gets some storylines that aren't the greatest. But I think the dynamic between her and Archer, especially when you get that mutual respect in the finale... It's really strong stuff, and I think Twilight is the best example there is of it. Okay. Uh, I'm going to flip on over back to uh, Deep Space Nine, because, of course, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm leaving like the real strong Voyager stuff chambered for later. You know, um, uh, all, all those Tuvok and Neelix uh, two-handers that I, I really want to share. But uh, until then, um, this is a very interesting pairing, one that you wouldn't necessarily expect but uh, I thought this is kind of a fantastic sort of road trip episode. This is a treachery faith in the great river with uh, Odo and Weyoun in which you have yet another Weyoun clone trying to defect to the Federation and it is up to Odo to get him to safety. And at a certain point, Weyoun realizes that, you know, the Dominion would be willing uh, surreptitiously to kill off Odo if it meant trying to stop, you know, the Wayun clone from defecting. So essentially, uh, he takes his own life here in this situation. But just learning so much about, say, the uh, history of the Vorta, how they used to be much simpler kind of uh, tree-dwelling folks, and it's really kind of the founders that um, raised them up with some genetic modifications to what they are now. That sort of stuff. But it's just kind of, it is the most, like, in-depth examination that we've ever gotten from a Weyoun clone that really was able to skate off a lot of the momentum you would garner from just having kind of the charisma that is Jeffrey Combs, who didn't really develop a, a real solid character, I'd say, until we get to Enterprise and Shran. And what was so great about DS9, and it's impossible to not note that when I was just coming up with my list for this episode, how many pairings there were on DS9 in contrast to some of the other series that were really worth mentioning. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know how many other Star Trek shows would have the awareness of the strengths of a Wayun character, but also feel the desire and need to build an episode pairing them off with one of their leads for an entire hour. 
I, I don't think there's other, many other Star Trek shows that would do that. Is there even a comparison when you look at the other franchise installments? I could see the possibility of Lower Decks doing that. But the thing mm-hmm. is, the, with Lower Decks, is like they really like to have like three stories going on at once. And they really like having all of their characters paired up with other characters having something to do. I like I don't think at least I didn't pick out a lower decks episode out of uh my list here just because I I couldn't really think of any of them as being two-handers cuz it's such an ensemble cast. Um unless you're a real big peanut hamper fan which uh of course uh <laughs> that 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 last season episode did not quite grip me that the same way that it did you. <laughs> I was saving that one for last. Thanks for spoiling it. <laughs> I, I apologize. I apologize. But yeah, no, this is a fantastic episode. And uh, maybe I'll just jump off of that because the only thing I can come up with that's maybe a comparison point from another show is I'm going to talk about Tapestry, you know, with from TNG pairing Q and Picard. And, you know, obviously that's a relationship that's very important to the show. And Q, like Wayun, is kind of this recurring antagonist character. So maybe there's something there, but it's not as deep an exploration of Q so much as it is our main character, whereas the DS9 one was actually about exploring Wayun and the culture of the Vorta. So that's kind of where the difference lies for me. But Tapestry, I think with Q, they sometimes didn't quite... I don't want to say they didn't know what to do, but they would kind of ping-pong between these kind of serious Q stories like Encounter at Farpoint or you know All Good Things... And then these more comedic ones, like, you know, the I can't true Q and what have you. Um, the ones where he would pop up when just sort of there'd be comedy hijinks for a some of them were very good hours of television. But I like Tapestry because it's about Q actively getting himself invested in sort of the the past of Picard and as much as he's possible to really kind of empathize with Picard, you get the sense by the end of this episode he does have an understanding of Picard in a way that Maybe he didn't quite care as much before this. It's, <laughs> I'm just never going to get over the whole blue uniform moment, you know, and <laughs> that of is course. pretty fantastic as he's wandering aimlessly around uh, the Enterprise D trying to get some career advice from Riker and Troy. But um, yeah, just the, uh, the, the cute Picard dynamic. I think that's probably the height of the dynamic that those two share. You could make an argument for all good things as well, but this is... Uh, more so kind of the, the, the playful side of Q, less so than more the menacing side that we do get to see glimpses of in, in the final episode of the series. It's like um, more fun here, but it does at least have that more serious edge, yeah. which some of them kind of erase, like Deja Q where he loses his powers. Not a lot of serious Q in that episode. Yeah. Um, so Cam, I'm going to jump over to Voyager here. As, as I was compiling a list, I realized that most of the outright two-hander episodes... You know, you brought up the shoot. Uh, uh, <laughs> I kind of alluded to the uh, Tuvok and Neelix two-hander episode that was Rise, in which they're stuck yeah. in that uh, space elevator. Um, they're not very strong two-hander episodes, so I, I, I do want to represent uh, Voyager here on my list. So I picked out, I, I did allude to it at the very start of this, but uh, Day of Honor, in which, you know, Tom and Bellana, they are in a, uh, a shuttlecraft. Uh, something goes wrong and they're stuck in their EV suits floating in space for an extended period. And this is the episode that actually kind of kicked off 
kind of them acknowledging that they have feelings for each other. I remember watching the um, preview for this episode way, way, way back in the day. And I was like, oh my god, I'm going to be bored out of my mind. We're going to be watching two people like floating in space for 45 minutes. That's not what this hmm. episode was. And it was actually... I, I found it engaging to see them actually kind of... Two people, again, often um, keep their emotions at a distance from other people being kind of honest with each other in this situation. Um, it's interesting, like, as this relationship got, like, like legit, flat-out romantic... Um, People have been shipping, like, Tom and Bellana for a long time, and the writers were always a little resistant. I know the actors didn't quite see it. Um, when they finally got together, I think the audiences realized, oh, there really is no chemistry between these two actors or characters. And it was just kind of a curious thing that you don't usually see, is because people are shipping folks, because there is a bit of a hint of a, a chemistry. And I, I thought that there was a hint before they got together. I just don't know what happened. And, like, you've got, like, these two actors who probably just friends in, in real life and like it's like i don't know kissing cousins at a at a certain point with those clenched <laughs> jaws that they had every time there's a smooch scene or is it a little bit also that there's like the excitement of the tension but when you actually have them as a you know domestic couple going forward on the show it kind of loses all of the spark and excitement yeah uh, you know you look at like x-files it was the whole will they, won't they aspect of Mulder and Scully that fans were just hanging on to for so many years. When they got together and were like living together in a cabin, I don't know, were people that into it? <laughs> uh, I don't know. Yeah, they weren't necessarily uh, Sam and uh, Rebecca, right? Exactly. Yes, because I always think of uh, you know the TV show Moonlighting, which was a little bit before my time to be watching. But like the whole story was of the will they, won't they between Bruce Willis and Sybil Shepherd. Once they got together, the show just died on the vine. Like it was done. It was fun though. Just okay. The whole Ross and Rachel thing from Friends. Um, mm. You ended up watching the uh, the Friends reunion special uh, from a few years ago, didn't you? Yep. I'm a, I'm a huge James Corden fan. I had to watch it. <laughs> I know you are. <laughs> uh, you try to emulate him in every way. Yeah, but him from Cats. <laughs> yes, thank you. Uh, or was it The Prom or Prom Night or whatever? Uh, that's another one. Oh, yeah. um, but uh, you had like David Schwimmer and Jennifer Aniston uh, both acknowledge that there was kind of a mutual attraction between them but it you know when one was with a a partner the other one was single and when the other one was single the other was with a partner and just it just never like happened between them so you could kind of look back and feel like yeah there's always kind of this tension between the two performers that you know bled out into the uh the screen there and um you know and when they actually were like paired up as um you know on-screen romances you still kind of felt that underlying tension, or I guess it, it felt real and authentic in a way that the, the Tom and Bellana stuff just no longer did. Or I, I think the Mulder Scully thing was like a very good example as well. I wonder how much of it was too that on Voyager, once Tom and Bellana were together, a lot of what built up to that relationship was a lot of like kind of like bickering um, and kind of like these very tension-filled sort of dynamics uh, they had going on. And then once it became more of a stable relationship, they kind of had to, like, tone that stuff down because it didn't make sense for this couple to be constantly fighting with each other episode to episode. And so I think it had kind of a weird impact on the Tom Paris character who had this whole, like, 
a lot of chips on his shoulders, um, a lot of issues leading up to that relationship. And then it was kind of like once he was with Bellana, they kind of toned that stuff down and his character got a little bit less interesting. And then it was like Bellana, who had a lot of, you know, anger, uh, a lot of fire to that character earlier on. They kind of toned that down. And so it became a little bit of a boring couple situation. I think she just uh, was super, super interested in all of his facts about the 20th century. And so that's why it ultimately just kind of uh, <laughs> you know, worked out between the two. Or he's like building the jukebox and whatever and like bringing the TV, the 3D TV or whatever into the house. <laughs> and I'm like, what am I watching? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's sometimes better to just have the brief spark of romance, like in uh, parallels between Worf and Deanna, and then move on. <laughs> move on. Yeah. No, they, they, I mean, they tried it, um, because they did follow up with Eye of the Beholder. Yep. In which then they were officially going to be a couple. And they didn't really touch on it until you got to All Good Things again. And then you get to Generations, and it is never spoken of again. And I just always thought that was weird, especially when, like, um, Worf showed up on Deep Space Nine and Way of the Warrior, and there's just no acknowledgement about his uh, brief, what had to be a very brief thing with uh, with Troy. Yeah, and at least with All Good Things, they're still introducing tension into it, because it's the whole back and forth about, will Riker accept this? So it's like they're still at least finding ways to have that tension going on, albeit by involving another character. Uh, it was not a prolonged thing, though, where audiences could lose interest. I do like the moment in All Good Things where Riker says to Deanna, like, hey, you want to get dinner tonight? And then um, <laughs> Worf just gives a look and it's just like, ooh, awkward. <laughs> well, speaking of sexy Star Trek couples, let's jump over to my next one. That would be Kai Wynn and Goldicott in Strange Bedfellows. Okay. Um, okay. I, I really wanted to include this one because I, it's two characters that... It's one of the best episodes <laughs> of uh, Star Trek ever. That's fine. Well, of course. But it's, it's two characters you wouldn't necessarily expect when you start that show to see paired off together in an episode. And it's such a pivotal point where... Ducat has converted himself to, you know, look Bajoran, and uh, Kai Wynn in this one basically steps away from the Kai title. She's going to follow Ducat in embracing the Pa Wraiths. And I think what's interesting about this one is it's not just putting the pieces in place for what's going to be the finale of the series. It's also just like underlining so much about these characters through this relationship. Kai Wynn has been, as we've seen, like a hypocrite through the entire series. And to have her literally in bed with the worst Cardassian we've ever seen in Star Trek just says so much about that character, underlines just all the kind of the toxic elements of her and how these two individuals are drawn to get towards each other is just fascinating. I love how the dynamic plays out in the next couple episodes. And uh, just Ducat himself, who's always had this very bizarre, you know, need to conquer the Bajorans, um, you know, obviously... His entire obsession, very creepy obsession towards Kira, the way he adopts a Bajoran look, the way he now is basically, you know, corrupting a Kai of the Bajorans. It just says so much about him as sort of this insidious nature of his character. So I thought this one, it's maybe an odd one that people don't think of when they think of Star Trek's greatest two-hander episodes, but I think it's such an important one for both of them. It's not an odd one, Cam. It's a strange one. A strange bedfellows one. Um, That's true. I do yeah. remember 
Mark Alimo complaining uh, about <laughs> at the time people were saying that um, he's better looking in Cardassian makeup than <laughs> in Mujuri makeup. And I was like, oof, people. Like, you don't have to actually say that to the actor. Like, really? Like, uh, brutal. But um, uh, the, the, the thing I... I okay. Yeah, yeah, this is one of the most, like, <laughs> cringy couplings uh-huh. you could ever imagine. Um, it's It's fun to see, watch... The thing that I think holds this back a little is like this is where we get a lot more into the magic spell book of it all when it comes to Deep Space mm-hmm. Nine, and this is not really how I thought you know when, when we're getting to the uh, the final run of Deep Space Nine that uh, so much of the mythology is going to rest on a magic spell book, and I was like okay like I, like I don't even know how to call this like sci-fi like this is like more fantasy realm where you're literally re reading chance from like this book to make things happen i'm just like uh okay okay it's very raiders of the lost ark by the end yeah okay um cam uh why don't i follow up with a uh, a tng episode um and this is a kind of a an interesting pair you wouldn't necessarily think would uh, be paired up but uh in the next phase uh mm. everybody thinks jordy and roe are dead due to a transporter accident but uh the two of them, they are paired up throughout the entire episode, and they are wandering around uh, uh, the Enterprise D out of phase, so to speak. And it's actually just revealed to me, um, I think that Michelle Forbes can create chemistry with pretty much any performer that she acts on screen with here. Whether it's um, mm-hmm. her introduction in uh, that titular episode in which she's going uh, back and forth with Patrick Stewart. So there's a lot of chemistry between her and Frakes in episodes like, uh, is it Conundrum, I think is the one? And yep. Yeah, so, um, and just even with um, Jordy, who is not always given the best material to work with here, um, there's a lot of fun going on with uh, uh, him and Ro having to look super competent, but also kind of wrestle with whether or not this is going to be their existence moving forward and uh you know it's uh besides we also get to see them shoot phasers uh like in the uh the funeral scene or the memorial scene in 10 forward which is uh that's a pretty fun sequence there too this is kind of a classic combination kind of that fire and ice combination because Jordy's often a very aloof character ro can be a very kind of fiery emotional character you put the two of them together it's a perfect pairing because they are those polar opposites. And to have the two of them work together to solve a problem, it's kind of like the easiest dramatic just answer to what to do with those two characters you can think of in terms of pairing off. It was something that, like, I had that one on my list as well. And I felt a little bad because I was like, well, hold on. There's got to be other Geordi pairings that maybe are more representative of who the character is over the course of the series. But... I initially was like, well, there's got to be a good Jordy Data pairing. And I'm like, well, there's elementary Dear Data, but like, yeah. there's not a lot else. They have moments, but they don't have episodes. That elementary Dear Data was the only one that I could really think of, but it's like, what does it really reveal about yeah. either of their characters? Not a lot. And ultimately, like, Picard comes in to save the day on that one. It's not even like it's left to Jordy and Data to solve. So I felt weird about including that one. Um, but even outside of that, Jordy pairings, can you think of many others that are, really work on the show? I did like him and Crusher in the episode Disaster, where they are mm-hmm. trapped in the cargo bay. But what are the great 
you know, Picard and Jordy moments, other than when Jordy's mom dies and uh, Picard thinks he's like losing a step there with his pursuit of her uh, possibly being kind of in like the atmosphere of this alien planet, which just turns out to be space aliens. That's a terrible episode. And I'd actually completely forgotten all of the uh, Picard stuff to do with that one. Uh, I, I need to rewatch that one. I think I'm getting close to that one in my uh, slow uh, TNG rewatch. That one is Interface from season seven. Yeah. But yeah, next phase to me opened up some possibilities that were never delivered on because I would have liked to have seen maybe these two have another episode further down the road because uh, further down the row because um, wow. <laughs> there was just like... So, thank you, thank you. So, uh, such chemistry that you could have had so much fun in a different type of story as well. Alrighty, sir, what's next up on your list? Well, I want to bounce back to Voyager and acknowledge Janeway and Chakotay. And we've said so often how Chakotay doesn't really come alive unless it's a two-parter and they give him kind of a big, passionate speech or something, uh, like kind of a, a tense moment with Janeway. Um... But there is an episode in season two, Resolutions, where the two of them are stranded on a planet after being infected with a virus. And basically, you just have to settle into, well, this may be the rest of our lives. And there's some romantic kind of hints going on. They're building a domestic life while Voyager is around solving the problem. And I think a lot of fans wanted to see these two get together. I don't know that it made any sense for these two to get together on a show where it's about getting home and what, like the captain and the first officer are like dating. Like, I, I just don't know that that really works. And I don't know that uh, Kate Mulgrew would have been in favor of that either. But I think having this sort of relationship exploration of these two characters in the second season episode introduces a lot of interesting possibilities the show never followed up on. And not just romance, but actually having episodes just continuing to mine just their dynamic. I wish they'd done more with that because it showed in resolutions that those two definitely had chemistry. Oh, absolutely. And I, you know, there, there's kind of that underlying chemistry that continued on. Not necessarily romantic in nature, but it's two characters that bounce off each other really well, especially when they give Chakotay, like, good material to work with here. Um, my my biggest critique in an episode that I genuinely like, though, is uh, Tuvok is given command, permanent command of uh, a Voyager. And when we kind of flash back to him in the captain's seat, he's still wearing like his gold uniform. And I think he still has like lieutenant pips. And I'm just hmm. like, well, wait a minute. Um, you're the captain now, sir. Like, uh, get those pips going. Like, pretend you're the ECH and they just materialize right on your collar. Yeah, no kidding. Wow. I need to do the fan edit on that one. Get some uh, yeah. effects work going on. I'll get right on that, Cam. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> my my VFX expertise will come in handy finally <laughs> after all these years. You know, there was the guy that did the um, the effects work on Data in um, Picard Season 1 to make it look a lot better yeah. and got a lot of attention. I don't think you'll get the same amount of attention for your CG work here. <laughs> uh, no, I'm more like the guy that would take... Um, Luke from uh, Mandalorian and make him look even worse in uh, the visual effects department, <laughs> if that's possible. It's like a wireframe. <laughs> yeah, like, or it's, it's a stop motion version of, um, you know, claymation version of uh, Luke, you know? <laughs> or Mr. Paperclip from Word. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. Oh, no, it, it's like Jason and the Argonauts, but like, uh, yeah. Amazing. Uh, 
Okay, Cam, you alluded to this episode. I, I, I don't want this one to be skipped over, but um, Cork and Odo always mm-hmm. had, like, scene after scene together. They were always great. Um, and I remember being at a convention, in, uh, Star Trek convention in Seattle, and I got to go up to the mic and ask Renee Bergeron, you know, how do you develop chemistry with somebody like, um, you know, uh, you know, a dear friend of yours, uh, Armin Shimmerman, especially, I, I asked him specifically about the episode, um, uh, The Ascent, and he said, you know, it, it, sometimes you just got it with another performer, and that, that's just the luck of the draw. But he also pointed out, this is the only two-hander episode between this pair. Like, it's just like they would get moments here or there, and I'm... I got to thinking about it. I was like genuinely surprised that we did not get more two-handers between Quark and Odo. But I mean, is that a bad thing? Like maybe they just knew like um, kind of in, in small pieces, it works. It's all that more strong. But um, the fact that you literally have uh, this is uh, Odo in his solid form. He breaks his leg on the ascent to uh, the mountaintop to get the uh, subspace transmitter going following a runabout crash. And... <laughs> Cork straps him up and uh, starts pulling him up and uh Odo's like you don't need to save my life he's like no I'm waiting for you to die so I can eat you (laughs) (laughs) but it's just that kind of like uh stuff between those characters that never gets old it also harkens back to what I was saying earlier about survival episodes there's something about these life and death circumstances that make these sort of episodes feel extra you know intimate in terms of exploring the characters but also there's like a tension to the storytelling and plus a problem solving in terms of how the characters are going to ultimately survive and i do wonder if like because this episode falls whereabouts in the ds9 run is it like season five or six i believe it's season five yes because odo is a solid at this point so this would be before the halfway mark of season five okay so it's like at this point it's so earned like people have seen these two play off each other from you know episode one basically of the series and so to wait those five years by the time you get that episode you're ready and you're so invested in the relationship and when you have like the stakes of this one it just works so well i am a little surprised they never did another two-hander with these two but like maybe it was like after this one there was no way to to kind of build it up into something more so it's like do we do kind of a lesser episode of the two of them doing like a Ferengi comedy episode or something like what do we really do with it ah uh, I, I mean that's the question I, I'm sure there are pitches coming in all the time but I think it's just smart like if you don't have a great pitch or something that inspires you then you know best leave it yeah and it can't be like a quark committing a criminal act and Odo investigating him because ultimately <laughs> it just is like well there's no outcome to this other than quark getting a slap on the wrist really well so uh, how many crimes did quark commit and never face any sort of punishment for uh quite a few quite a few what's the most serious one the arms dealing uh that or else remember the episode in which um he gives some sort of codes to this group of criminals so uh while the station is kind of being evacuated for some sort of like maintenance or something like uh these criminals kind of take over the station and i think I think they almost kill, like, um, someone, like, one of the main characters, like, maybe Jadzia, and mm-hmm. uh, I, I don't know why I'm blanking on the name of that episode, but I, I just, I remember that Nana Visitor said that she always played her performance of Kira very differently with Quark moving forward after that because it was such uh, an out, 
outrageous sort of uh, breach that uh, he would commit uh, such an act. Yeah, I, I don't know how Cork got away with it, but I guess that's why he was one of our big bad boys of Star Trek when we did that episode. <laughs> Hell yeah. Okay, Cam, so what is next up on your list? Yes, my next one is Someone to Watch Over Me, pairing up The Doctor and Seven, a dynamic that worked incredibly well, and they've got a few, uh, Body and Soul being another one. Um, but Someone to Watch Over Me, where I guess the Doctor wants to do a My Fair Lady, ultimately, and teach Seven about romance and dating. But ultimately, it's an exploration of the Doctor's own loneliness and this kind of burgeoning attraction he has towards Seven. This was an episode that, like... It's actually amazing to me how well this one holds up because it could have been a little cringy being written in the 90s, but I think it actually works very well and is a good examination of two individuals that struggled sometimes to connect with the other crew members, finding a connection between the two of them that would continue to pay off over the course of the series. This one is also, the genius of it is dramatically, it has real punch, but it's very funny. It really does manage to capture several different tones in kind of a perfect package of an episode. It really is my favorite uh, performance that we ever got out of uh, Robert Picardo as well. Mm-hmm. You know, as you say, there's the comedy, but there's also kind of the uh, the pathos that's going on when he kind of he realizes he's you know kind of fallen in love while being the dating coach. Well, while he's the hitch of the situation, <laughs> if, uh, so to speak, you know. And so, um, the, to me, this is probably the height of the Doctor for me, who was my favorite character for the longest time. But by the time we get into like season six, seven. He actually just became increasingly annoying as he's obsessing over his own ego and getting his holographic camera photos in and all that. Yeah. So it is the 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 doctor's journey for me as a watcher was a uh, I don't know it, it, it was a rather mixed one because of how much I liked that character for at least the majority of the show. Do you think the kind of exaggerated nature of his personality taking over the back? section of the season or the series i should say was just due to popularity of the character and this need to kind of amp him up to please the audience i think it's more about the writers playing to picardo and picardo i think from what i understood picardo pitched more stuff which is already kind of a no-no uh among kind of the berman era uh, Star Trek sets is that you know actors were really not supposed to be going to the writers but I, from what I understand I think Picardo pitched more stuff to the writers than anyone else and honestly I think they were having a lot of fun writing for him too and I think that's why he was kind of a uh, such a fan favorite character and I think it just got kind of more and more exaggerated uh, to the point where like for me it just got really grating by the end yeah because virtuoso for you is the worst case right I, I found it to be just such a betrayal of his character in which he yeah. would he would give up his life on Voyager so that he can pursue a career as an opera singer on an alien planet? I was like, like, really? Like, okay. Actually, no, not okay. Terrible. But you would have been okay if it was Neelix and they left him on that planet to sing, right? Uh, no question. <laughs> no question. <laughs> And dance like he did in that holodeck program, uh, that tropical holodeck program, right? Oh my God, it's coming back to me. Don't remind yeah. me. Don't oh, remind me. We, we saw his bare feet, which is quite amazing there. <laughs> That's true. They look like hobbit feet, didn't they? That's the blog art for this week, Camp. <laughs> Just a close up of the feet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, they come in pairs. <laughs> That, oh, <laughs> that's a good one that's a, it took me it, it took me a beat it took me a beat but uh, yeah I like that 
Um, look, one more I, I want to get to, and then um, maybe you do another one, and maybe we can maybe do more of a lightning round here. But uh, yeah. uh, how, how could we not bring up our man Bashir, which we have two fan favorites, Garrick and Dr. Bashir, teaming up for one of the funny or funnest all-time episodes of Star Trek period, in which we do have kind of a yet another transporter malfunction that uh, traps the, uh, the um, bodies of uh, so many of our uh, main cast members in Julian's own James Bond-esque holodeck program in which he's playing with Garrick. And um, just to see the two of those uh, characters just kind of um, bounce off each other in this situation, you know, a wannabe spy with a an exiled spy, um, th- this is just too much fun. And I think it's uh, Bashir and Garrick, not necessarily at their best in that like, they've had some very serious episodes but i think it's at their best together as a pair i am so glad you mentioned this one i actually had written down the wire for these two which is one of those serious episodes but i think this is a better pick because it i think showcases just like that these two genuinely get along really well and they're fun to kind of see the curiosity they have for one another i like that typically we see bashir asking garrick all of these questions about being a spy and now we get to see to have Garrick step into Bashir's world, and he's the one who's curious about how all of this works. It's a fun reversal on the dynamic, and on top of that, like you can just tell that uh, did Iris Stephen Bear write this one? Uh, you're 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 yeah okay. Asking me to uh, look something up very quickly online to con- confirm yes or no. Well, I'll just say, like, the writer who wrote this episode clearly is not only into James Bond, but also things like the Hourman Flint films, the Matt Helm films, really knows that 60s super spy genre really well. Um, and uh, it's just fun to see all of that play out. And to throw a character like Garrick in it, a, Gar- a character <laughs> who is uh, often quite ominous and dangerous, and to be throwing them into this very comic booky world it's kind of like a stroke of genius, and I love the way that that plays out. Cam, story by Bob Gillen, teleplay by Ronald D. Moore. Oh, okay, so Ronald D. Moore then is the, the guy who probably is the, the big diehard, because the details feel very specific, and that goes beyond a story credit. Yeah. Well, uh, Cam, what might be your last big one on the list before we do a bit of a lightning round here? I want to highlight an actual relationship between two women on a show, because I don't think we've done that yet. And Star Trek is actually quite poor at it. Yeah. And the one I want to showcase is Janeway and seven. And I'll go with the episode dark frontier, where we have that battle kind of for the soul of seven between the Borg queen and Janeway. And I love that this relationship that Janeway has with Seven is sort of like a mother figure, but it's a mother figure who often doesn't want to be in this role. And it's not all, you know, cuddles and whatever, warmth. It's definitely some tough love going on. And I think the way that Seven sees the value ultimately in Janeway's teachings and wants to stay with her and continue to evolve herself and regain her humanity and obviously the um, opposite version of what the... uh, the um, board queen is trying to seduce her with in this episode just a great pairing of Janeway and Seven and really speaks to the relationship that does occupy a pretty significant role in several pairing episodes of those two but I think Dark Frontier is probably the greatest moment of Seven and Janeway chemistry uh, not to mention the uh, 90s man model in his underpants on the board cube right Cam? 
where they're like sitting there like staring at that um hologram of the uh yeah dude in his underwear amazing moment yeah. amazing moment yeah, yeah. That, that's that's the janeway seven relationship at its peak for me anyway that should be every relationship on star trek <laughs> no but I, I like how you framed this as kind of the battle for the soul of seven of nine here and i think this is kind of um you know kind of that mentorship that janeway has over the character throughout the run of the series, um, whether Seven appreciates that or not. Um, it is, I, I go back to kind of this uh, offhanded line that they had at some point in, uh, I don't know, maybe like episode uh, eight or nine of uh, Picard season two, in which Seven brings up Janeway's name again. Um, Janeway went to bat for her, uh, tried to get her into Starfleet, despite the fact that Starfleet was like, no, you're a Borg drone you may not join Starfleet. And and Seven said, look, uh, Janeway threatened to resign her commission as an admiral. And, uh, well, I guess Janeway did not eventually make good on that uh, threat. Um, you know, so uh, don't know what that means about the relationship nowadays. But I would be very, I, I, to me, it'd be awesome to see Janeway and Seven together again, uh, say on like uh, season three of Picard. Yeah, I mean, I was... Honestly, it wasn't a purposeful decision on my part to not highlight any new Star Trek shows, but I did find it fascinating just when I was like going through my mind to try to come up with pairings in any of the new shows that really clicked the way any of the ones from the previous eras did. I really struggled. How about you? Well, Cam, okay. The, the most time any two characters spent together is through the course of uh, season two of Picard in which Raffi and Seven are just bickering at each other as, you know, kind of uh, uh, romantic partners. And I'm just like, really? Like, yeah. Uh, but like, I would not call any like of these episodes two handers because they're more, no. you know, as I was saying, like they're more kind of ensemble episodes a la kind of that uh, Lower Decks model, despite the fact that, you know, Lower Decks has two main characters, but I wouldn't call any of their episodes produced two hander episodes. It's It's too bad we don't get those kind of, duo episodes in the new era because i think they do wonders for character exploration yeah Alrighty, cam uh i've got a couple that i uh, i'll just quickly mention um you know uh, i could have made an argument for darmok with uh captains picard and dathan um mm -hmm. <laughs> heart <laughs> of stone as you know we see odo slash kira or is it really the female changeling is a two-hander episode in which uh, kira is stuck in a rock for some reason and um, another great example, though, of a pair who you would assume on paper have tons of episodes together, and Odo and Kira really don't. I had uh, same with Odo and the female changeling. Yes, uh, yes. <laughs> uh, it's only a paper moon. Uh, one of the the, the best uh, episodes you'll ever get. That is stars two guest stars as opposed to anybody in the main cast. But a fantastic episode dealing with uh, Vic Fontaine and Nog as Nog deals with uh, PTSD following the uh, loss of his leg during the Dominion War. And finally, I, I just want to point out the episode Change of Heart. And this is you know where Worf and uh, Jadzia are on assignment to retrieve a Cardassian dissident and uh, Jadzia gets injured. And it's up to Worf to decide whether to save the dissident or save Jadzia. And it's interesting. Uh, obviously, we know who he picks in this case, Jadzia. But the producers said that they would never have married the characters off had they known that Terry Farrell was going to depart. And I think this episode kind of exposes why that is, is because Worf makes kind of a, a big sacrifice for his career in the name of the woman that he loves, who dies shortly thereafter. I'll say this. You know what? Um, 
that's life, you know, like that happens. Like, um, you know, I, I, I'm glad that the producers, um, didn't make that decision. Like I'd rather see those two married. And I think it gave uh, Worf that much more pathos to deal with in uh, season seven. And I don't know, just think about, um, Worf lost any command prospects or at least that's what we were told at the time by Cisco following his decision there. So I think this is a real, uh, a real strong, uh, two-hander that I wanted to highlight. Yeah, and actually, I had that one on my list as well. And I also had Penumbra, which paired off um, Worf and Esri together in Season 7, where we got to actually examine a little bit of their changed relationship, where you have, obviously, the Dax symbiote, but Jadzia is gone, and what that means going forward. So uh, that one was on my list. Um, I also had Spock and Bones. We mentioned Spock and Kirk, but Spock and Bones, despite being together a lot, don't have a lot of episodes until you get to All Our Yesterdays, right near the end of the the, uh, the series, um, with them in a cave for an extended period. Pretty strong episode and a good dynamic there. Um, I had Cisco and Jake in Explorers, um, taking part in that solar sail trip. Uh, very good relationship building episode. Speaking of relationship building episodes, Picard and Beverly in Attached. Um We'll probably talk more about Picard and Beverly in the coming weeks. Um, it seems like that's going to be a big element of Picard Season 3. But this is probably the best relationship episode about the two of them over the course of TNG. Um, I also had Armageddon Game, which kind of kicked off the Bashir and O'Brien friendship. And then I think just lastly, I had Shuttle Pod 1 from Enterprise, which is the episode where Trip and Reed are stranded in space, another survival episode. This is a one I feel kind of mixed on in that I think it's a pretty solid episode, but I don't know that the show did the most interesting things with Trip and Reed going forward. Okay, yeah. Um, I, I'm just saying that the show always struggled with anyone not named uh, Archer to Paul or Trip, though, and so when you throw Reed into the mix, I can understand why. Yeah, like I would have liked to have seen more there. Um, maybe they should have had a Reed Mayweather episode where the two of them get stranded for an extended period of time. And then they could have, maybe that episode would be so popular, they would have gotten more material together going forward. Was that, uh, the, what was the Ryza episode? That Two Days, Two Nights? They, yeah. In which they were on the hunt for ladies? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Okay. Alrighty, Cam. Well, that is a pairing to perfection, uh, as we did. Um, and I guess coming up next week, we are officially in preparation mode for Star Trek Picard Season 3. Uh, we will be doing our rewatch of Season 2. And, and I, I think the big discussion is whether or not um, binge-watching the show will... And seeing it again after having you know, about a, a year's time will... We kind of digest the show differently. How will we feel about the show going in? So uh, I've begun my rewatch, and um, uh, I have thoughts to express, and I will leave it for that episode that we will do <laughs> next week. And maybe we can just talk about the lessons season three has to learn. <laughs> has to, please. <laughs> I. It's a lot of the same writing staff, but it is a different showrunner, so we shall mm -hmm. see. Mm -hmm. Okay, you can, of course, find us on the Twitter. I'm at Cam V is in very into Kai Win Ducat bedroom scenes, Smith. Well then. Uh, okay, I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll leave it out there, listeners. Uh, you can find me at Reportin, that's R-E-P-O-R-T-O-N, 
N is in a next phase, comma, the. Okay, so until next time, the arena is closed. Transfer complete.